course, Captain? What's the mission? Our mission? We explore. We seek out new life and new civilizations. We boldly go where no one has gone before. Cool. Sir. Let's take her out, Lieutenant Ortegas. Warp factor two. Hit it. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer on 4K. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, dusting off his Renaissance Fair costumes and uh, fighting wizards any way I can. <laughs> because this week we're going to talk about our favorite costume episodes. No, no, no. <laughs> we actually did that in the past, way back in the day, yeah. but this week... <laughs> it was a slow week, I guess. We are here this week to talk about re-exploring Strange New Worlds Season 1 on 4K. Um, Quite the experience, just obtaining those 4K physical media copies, uh, at least for me, where my uh, <laughs> it came bent in, from Amazon, so I had to get it replaced. But um, it was quite delightful popping this disc in, and I'll just say this, uh, Cam, it looks pretty darn good on 4K. It looks beautiful. Um, so beautiful that I just began to question, like, why does this show look so much better than the other shows? And that's not to say the other shows look bad. It's just like this one looks extra beautiful. I'll tell you the answer. Um, lighting. They actually have lights <laughs> turned on on the bridge, in the halls, in the quarters, where you look at the USS Titan or the Discovery, and it is so dark. And this is – I don't understand what the deal is because it's not just a Star Trek thing. Just right now that the cool thing to do is have dark lighting like yeah. for all these kinds of like movies and shows. I don't get it. I this I think part of the reason why people are attached to Strange New Worlds in, in like such a way that it's, it's kind of broken into the mainstream the way that Discovery and Picard really did not. Um people just feel comfortable, you know, in, in the around these characters and in these settings and I think the lighting has a lot to do with that and especially with 4K where it just pops out to you. It looks fantastic. I will take issue with this, though. I still don't think the 1701, the digital mm. rendition of it, looks very good. It yeah. looks um, it looks like CG, whereas I look at other like um, computer-generated effects that they do here, and it looks photorealistic. I, I think back to that um, space station featured in the season finale, uh, season finale, Quality of Mercy, and it looked like a photorealistic space station. And yeah. I'm just like, why, why Why can't we get that for the, the ship itself? Why does it have to look so much more cartoony than everything else that's going on? The landscapes? When it, Cam, Vulcan, the planet Vulcan looked absolutely breathtaking the, the two or three times that we got to explore there, you know? And so I just, I don't understand why they want to make this ship look so stylized, even in 4K. It's just this bizarre decision they made, and we saw it with Discovery as well, where that ship looked pretty darn cartoony. Uh, when they first showed it in episode three of Star Trek Discovery season one, and they just they've held to this, and I guess it's just like what they're gonna do going forward. But I think it would have looked better using a model or at least something that 
just more attention to making it look real as opposed to kind of stylized. Well, it's, uh, I know I keep going back to the same old uh, example again, but like Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, which was made 20 years ago almost, um, more photorealistic VFX than the rendering that we get here of the 1701. I don't understand. Like, this is a conscious choice. It must be, you know, especially when we're getting like photorealistic, you know, uh, images of, say, space stations or landscapes, you know? So I just, it, um, it irks me. I'll say that. I just do, generally don't understand uh, why CG looks so shoddy most of the time. You know, we recently saw Fast uh, 10, which is like, I think, $340 million or something it cost, and every bit of it looks fake. And you're like, I don't get it. I just don't understand. How much did the uh, the Jungle Cruise cost, Cam? Um, Probably like 150 to 200 It looks like garbage. Yeah, it did. It looked like... Uh, it, it looked worse than the ride. <laughs> <laughs> it would look so much better if they just uh, either filmed it on a set or, I don't know, went down to Puerto Rico and uh, filmed it there. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, but okay, <laughs> we digress as usual. <laughs> um, why don't we take it uh, episode by episode and then we can um, kind of share our final thoughts on uh, it, it. Because ultimately what we're getting at in just a few weeks, uh, Strange New World Season 2 will be premiering. Uh, we're excited to be doing that week to week. Although... I'm doing a little bit of math in my head, Cam. We're going to be gone in Vegas for two episodes. And so we'll come back from Vegas with uh, two episodes to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be jumping into our coverage of the season two finale. So um, just right. giving a, a, a warning ahead of time for all the listeners out there. That's right. Yes. So why don't we start with uh, episode one titled Strange New Worlds. Tyler, what was your thought on the rewatch? Um, pretty solid. Like, it, like, um, it, it it's not as if like the rewatch changed my mind about this episode, but it it reemphasized that there are a lot lot of Star Trek um uh, series premieres that deal with first contacts. If we're talking about um you know the prophets, uh, the caretaker, uh, the uh, uh, Klingons in Enterprise, or Sulaban, um, the yeah. jellyfish in um. Uh, uh, encounter at Farpoint, you know, um, among the first contact adventures, you know, kicking things off, like, it's interesting. Like, I don't necessarily think that this is the strongest series premiere. I think, say, Care- Caretaker and Emissary are stronger series premieres. Yeah. But I think this is a stronger first contact episode, if that makes sense. I think that does make sense. And, you know, those had the advantage of being like two hour. Uh, episodes, kind of like mini movies introducing the crew. Mm-hmm. I think this episode did a fantastic job of introducing like the entire crew in like 50 minutes. And they obviously had a bit of an advantage coming off of season two Discovery, where we met, you know, Pike number one and Spock. Um, but I still think like this one did a really good job of setting up the story of, you know, uh, Pike basically in a place where he's not comfortable coming back to his job because of the experiences he had witnessing his future and the way they kind of told this story about him kind of finding his footing a bit to continue on the story while also introducing all this new cast members setting up kind of an interesting and fun first contact story they juggled it so well that you're like huh they made that look really easy and i'm sure it wasn't there's no way it was well they also had a fair number of years to get the scripts right it was so bizarre to me thinking you know like we watched this episode for the first time in 2022, and the last time we had seen like 
Pike was in, was it like early, early 2019 was the uh, season uh, two finale of Discovery? Yeah. And so there was like a three and a half year gap. But I think on the show, they said like the Enterprise has been going uh, under repairs for the last three months. And so it's just weird to think that it's only been like a three month gap or maybe it's been a little bit longer. I think Alex Kurtzman said in the special features that it's been uh, eight months to a year. I don't think mm-hmm. it's been a year at all. Like, um, like why would the sh- ship take like one year to get repaired? You know, uh, certainly Anson Mount, I can believe that he can grow that uh, facial hair within the course <laughs> of one week. So I believe that um, this is more kind of a three month gap. But like just jumping in, and even Spock making mention of like, um, you know, every time I go into space, the the burden of losing my sister uh, still kind of carries with me. <laughs> and uh, uh, Pike's like, yeah, miss her too. <laughs> <It's> like. <laughs> Um, I also got like laughs out of like other little comments like um, Pike's like, uh, you're the best first officer in the entire fleet. I'm like, eh, I guess he didn't really like Saru that much as a first officer. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it, it, it's interesting to see how much closer and how much more of a family this kind of feels like for him mm-hmm. versus kind of the um, season two of Discovery. That felt more like a job he had to do. <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay, I got to go hang out with these people and then I can get back to my real team. And it's like just the job they did with a character, Lon, who in this you know episode they showed that she would not take sedation for you know having the appliances basically put at, grafted onto her face or whatever the mutation process to go undercover. Um, the speech she has where she's talking to Pike at the end—it's not something I would have expected in a premiere. I would have expected much more of a we need to kind of set up where you know, Pike, Spock, and number one are. And I really give them points for taking a character like Lon and giving us a sense of where they're coming from emotionally as well. They had fun introductions for, you know, Mabenga and Nurse Chapel and those, and and Uhura as well. But it's, I would have thought that they would have kind of waited to really spend time with the supporting cast. I was impressed that they actually gave Lon a lot to do. Well, speaking of a sporting cast, why don't we jump over to episode two, Children of the Comet, and it's an Uhura episode. You know, of course, uh, she shows up in her uh, dress uniform while, uh, <laughs> while Captain Pike is is uh, making ribs for uh, a lot of the folks in the ship. And it really is such an interesting journey for Uhura in season one that I was not expecting, where for her, she she's never certain if like Starfleet was the be-all, end-all for her, mm-hmm. where she's on a ship with people that think that Starfleet is the be all end all. And I, I like her journey felt organic and we'll, we'll talk about it later. It ultimately cul- culminated in, uh, Oh, what was the, uh, all those who wander the, uh, episode nine. Yeah. And that's where she's certain Starfleet is her future, but it's interesting. Like kind of, and we all have like our own kind of thoughts about her, the character, because Michelle Nichols is just, such like was such an iconic presence but her the character as we knew her is kind of a cipher like we didn't really know that much about her it was more just nichelle nichols personality like and charisma breaking through the screen and so actually diving into like her's backstory about like her parents were both killed in an accident Mm -hmm. and you know she knows 37 languages and yeah she's wondering if uh, starfleet's really going to be her career I thought this is a great way to explore a character that's been around for almost 60 years, but we still didn't know that much about her. It's actually really crazy when you think about it of a franchise that's been around as long as Star Trek has and how little you know 
about some of these iconic characters like Uhura, you could say Chekhov, Sulu as well. Like, you know, little details, but you don't have much of a big picture as to where they were before they joined Starfleet. And I thought it was interesting how, too, like a big part of Nichelle Nichols as a performer, but Uhura on the original series was like her musical ability as well. You know, you had that scene early on in the series where she's like singing to Spock in uh, like the mess hall. And I like the way they built this first episode around Uhura's musical abilities and having a situation where she's presented with an alien, you know, totem problem and they have to unlock it and it's done through music. I just thought that was a really clever way to... You're introducing elements of Uhura you don't necessarily know, but they're also relying on elements you do know about the character. Is she... Okay. Like, Spock, or I should say Pike, uh, referred to her in episode one as the prodigy. Yeah. Is it... Like, it never struck me in the original series or the movies that, uh, you know, Uhura was some sort of, like, genius. It's just, like, somebody who's, like, super, super competent. But throughout the season, it does seem as if she's being portrayed as some sort of like genius wunderkind or something like that you know yeah like you know the jj verse the kelvin verse reimagined Chekhov as like the prodigy character um yeah in a way to kind of explain why he was so young in comparison to his um, fellow crewmates but i never really thought about it with ahura and i think it's just because i just don't know if the original series offers you that kind of insight into the character that would make you think that but if you're looking to kind of give a kind of loose reinvention to these characters, I guess it's an interesting angle to take, especially considering that, yeah, she is considerably younger than the other icons on the show, you know, Spock, number one, Pike. Okay. Um, jumping over to episode three, Ghosts of Illyria, in which we explore number one, you know, Una Chen Riley, um, really for the first time in uh, 57 years, I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, with go and it's interesting we find out she's you know genetically augmented uh doesn't seem to be as much of a problem for laon being in starfleet um i guess she was opening up front about being a descendant of khan nuni and singh yeah. and they're like ah eh, sure join us but i guess because um number one lied about it or or uh did not put that on her application form she she's in trouble by the end of the season um i don't know like i i'm trying to think like how much this episode really revealed about her beyond just her backstory? Like, is it driving her motivations the same way that we found with uh, Uhura in the previous episode? I just, I, I don't think that Ghost of Illyria is necessarily as strong as Children of the Comet. No, I would say the first two episodes of the season so far are considerably stronger than Ghosts of Illyria. And I think we thought the same when we reviewed it you know, back when we were covering the series week to week. But I felt it even more so this time, where it did feel like a bit of a dip in quality, like with the whole mystery aspect that you've got the Pike Spock stuff dealing with with the riders in the sky. This one, it just, it felt like it wasn't diving into the character in a way that was particularly interesting. It was more about building the kind of the outbreak on the ship story with a little bit of more just like exposition about the character versus an organic character journey like you got with Uhura in the previous episode. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, we do get to see our characters kind of be competent to save the day, but it felt kind of like a deus ex machina by the end of it, in which, what happened? Like, um, number one's genetic stuff acted as some sort of conduit by accident, you know, like to give a cure to the light virus. Yeah. I, I is one of those things where, like, you're not resolving the episode because... Um, people have 
had interpersonal stuff that they've you know been able to resolve whether it's uh within the the cast or you know kind of the the guest star of the week but it's mostly just because um the writers say oh well um her genetics solved it just like that i'm just like oh okay fine yeah and this episode is also having to spend time setting up mabenga's secret of having his daughter in the pattern buffer as well so it's kind of like trying to do a bunch of different things and i think it comes at sort of the expense of spending a lot of time with learning more about number one which i would think would actually be a good idea to do because number one while you can say the character is iconic because of her appearance initially obviously in the menagerie when they aired it and then when the cage became available people became aware there but like we don't really know anything about number one we know something about ahura but number one is pretty mysterious still and it was interesting did you watch the uh the pilot episode with the commentary tyler no i did not so one of the interesting things they had to say was that like they basically split the number one character in half because the character was more serious in the cage and they decided to make the more serious half la'an and then the more kind of like fun loving side the number one as we see played by rebecca romaine and so it was kind of interesting how they basically split that character in half so like in a way they do have to spend time then really honing in on who specifically number one is on the show strange new world and i'm not sure they do it in the first three episodes well by the time we get to spock and mock they're both called where fun goes to die uh yeah so um but uh yeah i i just i wish that we had maybe a stronger episode in which if you're only going to have one episode to really explore number one and this is the one that we got. I I hope that we can do something. Maybe we come up really strong in the season two premiere. That'll be focused on Una there. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, jumping over to number four, uh, Memento Mori. Uh, I think this is uh, probably out of the first four episodes out of the gates. Uh, I think this is the strongest one. And again, it, uh, focused on La'an. And you and I were not expecting La'an to be such an integral part of the series especially within just the first four episodes and i don't know i'm I'm sold on this character i understand what motivates her i also understand that she's not driven purely by trauma but that is something that informs her character i also think that this is a very effective way of introducing a an ongoing villain that they uh refer to and go back to uh throughout the uh, first season um yeah I, i i mean i i i dug this one i think a little bit more then I did my first watch. I, I went back and listened to all of our subspace episodes, and I thought it was a little derivative of what's come before in Star Trek. But it, it, if, when I just sat back and watched, I just I, I appreciated it on its own merits for what it was doing. Well, what I really enjoy about it is that yes, it is kind of riffing off of Balance of Terror, but it's also very character specific, where you are getting this insight into Lon through a mind meld with Spock. It feels like it's an episode that's kind of doing two things, but doing them really well. Like, all of the strategy stuff, I find, is pretty edgy or seat. But also the um, kind of exploration of the Lon character and her backstory with her brother, I found that stuff very well told as well. So it was kind of like a best-of-both-worlds situation. Not the episode, but just the concept of two great things working well together. And, I mean, I think this show is actually very clever, too, in that, like, it will hone in on its theme. And just, like, the way they work in, like, hope in this episode and that kind of works for almost every episode like you can tell that there are episodes of star trek discovery where you can watch it and it's a little bit like a transformers movie where you'll watch it you'll watch things happen for a prolonged period of time and at the end there'll be a voiceover telling you what it was about where you go was it 
<laughs> like, uh, yeah. I don't really know if that adds up. Do you mean connection? <laughs> Th- this season is all about connection. Yeah, where you go like, wait, was it? Was it really? Um, uh. Whereas I found, like, this show... Often with its A and B stories, they'll mirror each other in theme very well, but without a way where they're, like, on the nose, pounding you over the head. But it's there if you look for it. Yeah. I, I think this is also the first episode in which uh, Uhura and Hammer started kind of uh, creating a bond as well, and I think that was important, too. And so, um, yeah, uh, props to Memento Mori. Um, for me, uh, perhaps the, the high point of the first half of the season was Spock Amok, in which I'm like, thank God. You can make Star Trek fun again. You can yeah. have the characters uh, and being uh, portrayed by like very talented performers here in, in terms of uh, both Ethan Peck and the woman uh, who is playing T'Pring. And uh, uh, it was interesting. Like um, you and I noted last year, like, oh, it's cool how often they're bringing back T'Pring throughout the season. I think she made three appearances and it's, a, you've got good chemistry, like real chemistry between those two performers. And also just from a character perspective, it's helpful for us to understand how um, she got to the point where she wanted Spock to duel to the death because <laughs> she didn't want to marry him anymore. Uh, and, and based on an episode like this, um, I think maybe some folks um, uh, have been in relationships where uh, maybe they feel undervalued or maybe people aren't making the uh, same sorts of sacrifices that are needed. And I think when you can... Um, totally empathize and be on the side of somebody who's not in the main cast about what's going on with them. I, I think this is a great example of this. And so having a body swap episode, um, this is a lot of fun. Um, uh, just little moments like, um, like I know what a door is like that made me laugh. And these are Vulcans, you know, with that kind of dry delivery there. And, um, the aliens uh, that we have, uh, Pike doing the, um, the, uh, diplomacy with, um, it was really cool. Like they are empathy aliens. It's like they want people to see things from their perspectives, which is maybe uh, kind of hitting the theme of this episode uh, a little too hard on its head. But uh, <laughs> I don't really mind. I-, I thought this was just such a fantastic. This is far and away my favorite episode of the first half of season one. Yeah, this one is so much fun on the revisit as well. And, you know, you think about an episode like, oh, I don't know, say Fascination from DS9, where they all fall under like the love spell. What does that episode tell you about any of the characters? That um, apparently, like, Miles and Keiko have no sexual attraction to anyone but themselves. <laughs> I was like, really? Okay, cool. Um, uh, and, and props to Avery Brooks directing where, um, you know, like, uh, he had women fawning all over him. And, um, yeah, yeah, he, he was very, very gentlemanly about how he directed that episode, though. Yeah, it's like you can make these Lark episodes of Star Trek, though, where, like, they actually mean something in the way that you are, not just delving into, you know, the the need for empathy from, you know, Spock towards what T'Pring is going through and vice versa, but also, you know, this has the whole introduction as well of, like, Chapel's burgeoning feelings for Spock as well, and her being kind of his confidant, and I love how that develops through the season. This is an episode that could easily be like an inconsequential, silly episode of Star Trek. There's lots of them in the past, but this one actually is advancing the characters in an interesting way, which I think is notable for a series that also is like, we're episodic. We're not too worried about being a serialized show. It's still managing to make it work, though. Um, is Enterprise Bingo anything that you would uh, be interested in playing? Uh, I didn't understand what the chewing gum thing was with the transporter. 
Oh, that I guess that when you um, rematerialize, the gum has its flavor again because it's reconstituted the gum. So that brings up a lot of philosophical questions, personally. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, go on. Yeah, I mean, Enterprise Bingo to me feels like, first off, I think it's just like a fun little, you know, side story for those two characters. But um, it to me feels very much driven as if you were a fan of Star Trek and you got put on a ship, what would you want to do? Now, I don't know if I'd want to shoot someone or myself with a phaser, but I kind of get where they're going with this stuff. Okay. Um, hopping over to uh, episode six, uh, Lift Us, where suffering cannot reach. Cam, for me, this was the biggest um, reconsideration I had throughout the entire season, in which I uh, I went back and listened to our initial takes, and I kept saying, "Cam, this is a dud. This is a dud. This is Enterprise, or this is Strange New World's first dud." Um, Cam, going into this one, knowing what was to come, I actually had a full new appreciation of just how things were a little bit creepy going on uh, under the surface, mm-hmm. which you could still kind of detect um, in that first watch, um, but also appreciating so much about what the uh, child's father was trying to accomplish here and how, you know, sometimes you can try as you might, but it's an alien culture. They're not within the Federation. Um, maybe all you can do is just drink a swig of whiskey at the end and lament that there's going to be suffering uh, that a child is going to have to in- endure in a profoundly terrible way, and you can't do anything about this. Um, I don't know, like, Cam, I, I really like this episode so much more, and um, th- this is what I will um, kind of liken it to. It's like, uh, say you're editing somebody else's writing, and maybe the writer knows where the sentence is going, but as you're reading it, you're, you're like, huh, what? Yeah. There's a misplaced comma, this clause, you're backing into the sentence, and it's just like... But by the time you get to it, you're like, okay, I understand what they're trying to say. I understand from their perspective the story that they thought would be good. Um, it was only until I watched this a second time that I saw it from their perspective. The writers knew where they were going. And so I, I, I do want to rescind my initial uh, remarks about that episode. I, I think this is actually like a, a pretty good, pretty weird episode of Star Trek um, that you don't typically see end in this sort of manner. Yeah, you know what? I also had a real turn on this one as well. Like, th- I kind of dreaded going back to this episode Mm -hmm. and i think for me like where it runs into some issues is like the sheer amount of obstacles they have to create to keep you know pike and crew in the dark by the end where like the father's like i have something to say and then they get interrupted (laughs) so he can't say it and they do a few things like that oh we can't get through right now we can't communicate with pike and it's like Okay, like one obstacle is one thing, but at this point we have like three or four necessary just to get him to that like dark chamber (laughs) where you see like, I think Anson Mount plays it beautifully where you have this like awakening like realization of like, this is kind of (laughs) creepy. This is not the celebration and fanfare I was really expecting. (laughs) The, the, The underground chamber featuring mummified children's bodies, huh? What's going on here? Oh, that's a little odd. I didn't expect to see that. But I, I agree with you, like, the whodunit aspect, you know, if you want to call it like that. But the like, the mystery that is slowly being unraveled, I actually think is maybe more effective once you've seen it. Yes. Because yes. I, I think the first time, maybe it just feels frustrating because it's not an episode with a lot of momentum. You spend a lot of time kind of just hanging out on this planet with you know Pike and this former love interest, and you're like, well, wh- where is this going? Why am I spending so much time with this kid? 
you don't kind of understand what the mystery is. Whereas I do think like, you know, I've talked in the past how like watching the episode Emissary, the premiere of DS9, is more satisfying once you've watched the show. I kind of feel like this episode is better going back to it a second time. Yeah, and look, people make the argument like, oh, oftentimes you'll pick up things that you didn't pick up before upon your second viewing of you know a movie or an episode. Yeah, sure, but I don't think that's why this episode improves. It, it, it's not like we were missing big things going into it. I, I think it was almost kind of um, the tone of the episode. It just didn't work upon first viewing because of yeah. that mystery that didn't like you said there's just all these like kind of arbitrary obstacles but going into it now knowing what the conclusion is and it's almost kind of this this feeling of doom that i thought was very effective it kind of gave me like midsummer vibes as well you know and so um i don't know i i just i i really really uh appreciated this episode on a whole other level upon this rewatch here i would say like the thing that changed for me if anything did on the revisit was the father's performance which i think i just kind of found <laughs> probably a bit irritating the first time through and the second time knowing exactly where it's going I could read more into that performance and what he yeah. was trying to communicate uh it didn't just feel like the stick in the mud character I understood why he was behaving the way he was like color me shocked I really didn't expect to enjoy this episode as much as I did it was interesting to me too like on the deleted scenes they had like this whole extended uh flashback sequence of Pike meeting Allura for the first time and they'd obviously cut all that, but it had him in, you know, a red uniform and helping her, you know, save her ship, basically. It's notable to me, like, that this was cut because it's quite long, a sequence. It's almost like they realized that they didn't want this to be as much of a relationship episode as sort of a mystery of what is going on episode. And by pulling back on that element, kind of cutting that sequence, it does frame it more as driven by the child story versus, like, the Pike relationship story. Yeah. Um, okay, jumping over to episode seven, the Serene Squall. Um, it, it was fun, Cam. Uh, we got Cybok, a glimpse of Cybok's back by the end. And then when we were on podcasting, we're like, oh, wow. So obviously Cybok's going to be the villain of the entire season. And the uh, season finale <laughs> is going to center around Cybok. And we can't wait for Cybok to come back. And the creators of the show are like, no, we just kind of threw that in for fun. Uh, don't expect to see him. And um I, I don't know if they quite understood what kind of response it would get. I think people are mostly positive uh, of kind of like uh, this appearance of Cybok. But from what I understand, kind of the, the season two scripts were already in the can by the time they got um, by this this episode aired. So it, I, I would not expect Cybok in season two, but I can only hope for season three, which is uh, now um, being put on pause due to the writer's strike in Hollywood. So um, otherwise, I, I don't know, this the screen's wall was um it's okay I, I i mean i do like the idea of um pike fomenting a mutiny aboard the pirate ship like that was kind of fun yeah but a lot of this one i, I kind of it, it dragged for me just a little though yeah this one fell a little bit in my estimation as well i did really enjoy the scenes between um you know angel and spock um or dr aspen i guess at that point just like kind of breaking down like the kind of the nature of Spock, the human and the Vulcan, and what does that mean? Does it have to mean separate things? Can it mean one thing just because you have two halves? Like, I thought that aspect of the of the story was actually quite interesting, the identity aspect. I think that the two characters had, like, a lot of chemistry. And honestly, I, I know people are very mixed on the character of Captain Angel once they're revealed and 
turn into like a real, you know, just like chew the scenery character. But I thought it was a hamming it up. Yeah, hamming it up. I thought this was such a fun character. And the type of person you could bring in in future seasons, kind of like a Harry Mud, where, yes, they are bringing like a very like kind of like silly swashbuckling nature to the to the to the show. But sign me up for it. I think Captain Angel could be a blast in future seasons. Okay. Uh, well, jumping over to episode eight, um, did the Elysian Kingdom change in your estimation upon rewatch, Cam? Let me tell you about the uh, experience of watching the Elysian Kingdom for the second time. Yeah. Okay, so like I watched, you know, Lift Us Up and was like, oh man, like I, I was wrong. I was wrong to have felt as negatively as I did towards that episode. So the Elysian Kingdom, I was like, okay, I'm going in. I know exactly where this is going. I am not going to be shocked when it turns into a Ren Fair episode in the first five minutes. I know that that's what it is. So I'm sitting there, and about 20 minutes in, I'm like, what's going on on my phone right now? And then I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 stop, stop, because I don't like doing the second screening thing. Uh, uh, so I like, I, I, nope, put the phone down. I was like, nope, you focus on what's going on. About 10 minutes went by, and I'm like, there's something I wanted to check on my phone again. <laughs> I literally had to take my phone and I threw it across the room, like on the floor, like slid it across the floor because I was like, I'm so bored watching this that I'm struggling to pay attention. And I had to force myself to experience the Ren Fair stuff again. I mean, once it turns into Deborah the Nebula, I'm not bored anymore. I'm just kind of like, wow, this is, uh, this is something else. But uh, I just found all of the dress up aspect of this episode I like some of the dress-up on Star Trek episodes that have happened in the past. This one just does not work for me at all. So, Cam, I, I kid you not, um, I fell asleep about 75% into this one, <laughs> and I woke up to the Deborah the Nebula stuff, and I was yeah. like, oh my god. So I had to go back and rewind, and I, I like, I, I, I again, I was watching this in bed at, like, god, like, 10.30 at night, had an early day the next day days so then knowing that i had to go back and rewind and watch another 15 minutes of this episode it was excruciating for me this one just did not work i i'm not invested in the stakes that's going on and then i'm kind of horrified by the decision that the the, the resolution to mbenga's entire motivation throughout the season so far is that um he's gonna stick his daughter in a nebula for all eternity and she'll be cool with it when <laughs> she's 30 years old and don't worry she did it through her own accord so we don't have to worry about those kind of sticky consent issues and i was just like oh, what like it really bummed me out <laughs> it tickles daddy <laughs> um <laughs> yeah like this one it's also like you could cut out like 20 minutes and it wouldn't matter there is nothing that goes on during the ren fair aspect of this episode that it's just like connecting dots but the dots don't actually like matter you could connect dot A to dot F, and it would not make a difference to where the narrative is going. Uh, it just is kind of wasting time. And it also just doesn't work, because like the whole thing is that this is coming out of his daughter's imagination. So you're telling me his daughter is imagining like all these sexual innuendos between like the characters, like yeah. the crew members that her father works with? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I know. Um, it is pretty weird. Uh, this whole episode uh, was very weird and uncomfortable to watch. I'm sure they had a lot of fun uh, shooting it. I did not have fun watching it. I'm concerned about this episode's uh, feedback, though, because like I have now been to multiple conventions where fans, this is like the one episode they really cite from this season. And 
I think the creators and the cast are getting the message. People love this episode. I, I think that this is probably a very polarizing episode, though. Like, I, I think that there are, are even more people that are saying this episode sucked. But I just I wonder if this episode touched a certain segment of the audience yeah. in a way that it made them that much more vocal, you know, versus just kind of a dud of an episode that like a regular dud of an episode. Well, it's like, you know, you can look at the episode Cupid from TNG, which is in some ways a very similar episode. It doesn't have the weight of, like, the Mabenga story attached to it. Uh, but that's one where a lot of people love it because it's like, oh, you've got some funny wharf lines. You've got just hijinks in, you know, the Robin Hood universe. But then you'll hear other people who are like, that episode is unbearable. I can't take it. I'm kind of like, I guess, down the middle on Cupid. This one, though, I find this one unbearable. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, uh, jumping over to the penultimate episode, uh, All Those Who Wander. Um, it's interesting. Okay, so you are bringing back the Gorn. I think they were used effectively. I mean, this is kind of an alien knockoff, but I didn't mind it. It um, uh, had some cool moments, uh, I suppose. But um, the thing that did bug me, though, is Hammer's quick demise in service of Uhura's character arc. And I'm talking about the decision-making on the part of the writers here. And I just, like, it was weird what they were doing with Hammer. Like, he'd be in and out of episodes uh, for long periods of time. I think we were ha had been led to believe that Hammer was supposed to be a recurring character before the show premiered, but then he ended up in the main credits. And that actually makes a lot of sense. And that's... Um, I don't know. Like, like, like this one, uh, there's some cool visuals... But it doesn't like his death doesn't quite land for me in the way that I think the no. show was hoping it would. And I, it felt a little unearned. This episode to me just feels like a technical exercise. And when it's working, it's a fun technical exercise. But it doesn't feel like the episode carries enough weight to support the death of Hemmer either to me. And like the circumstances in which it happens, I'm like, I don't know. This feels kind of arbitrary. They want that big emotional farewell. But even in an episode of Star Trek Discovery, this reminded me a little bit of um, Project Daedalus with the death of Arium. The emotion that like is coming out of Burnham when Arium is you know being blasted out of the airlock, that works for me so much more. And it kind of shouldn't, considering Arium didn't even have a character until like that episode. And yet I've spent time with Hammer, and this one doesn't work for me, which tells me then that there's something in this episode, the way they are conveying this death scene and building up to it, that just does not work. Well, why don't we jump over to the season finale, uh, Quality of Mercy, which far and away my favorite episodes. Uh, great to save the best for last here, but it is kind of a side quill to a Balance of Terror and a very effective one. Like one, it didn't feel cheap. Or unearned and like, hey, we're just gonna, hey, as long as we're referencing like the member berries, everyone's gonna like lap it up. This one actually felt like totally earned and just going on a journey with Pike, you know, seeing like old Admiral Pike in that um, TOS movie era uniform. Yeah. And just talking to him is like, bro, like, I, I know what you're thinking, but this what there are consequences to you messing with the timeline here. And I come out of this like feeling secure in that like, Pike is not going to be hung up about his fate moving forward. It, it, it will be something referenced, of course, but it's not going to be the informative trait of this character, like so much of the trauma that we see in season two of Picard was for that character, or say, you know, uh, 
how Burnham has to bear the weight of the entire universe on her shoulders every single season, you know? So, um, I just, yeah, fantastic season finale and, and uh, just shot so well. There's tension, legit tension, but Cam, if there was one particular weakness <laughs> uh-huh. in this one, what might it be? Not the writing of Kirk, but the performance of Kirk to me on the revisit. It, I'm going to like give a little bit of leeway here where a lot of the Kirk performance I noticed on the rewatch is done all on view screen. And maybe the actor is going to take some adjustment to delivering like a, a really strong performance on a view screen. I found he was actually better when he was in a room with Anson Mount and they were acting off of each other. But there's just something in my brain that just is not connecting and that I just don't see Kirk or hear Kirk when Paul Wesley is on screen. It doesn't have kind of the spirit or energy that Chris Pine seemed to be able to capture in the Kelvin verse. And I was thinking about the other Chris's that were up for the Kirk role. Uh, Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pratt, they also yeah. auditioned, which is kind of hilarious. And I can picture them, both of them, capturing the spirit of Kirk in a much more effective way than Paul Wesley did. It is a charisma, like a sense that like when Kirk walks into the room, everyone kind of notices him. You know, Picard could be kind of the quiet bookworm to a degree in the corner, but when he speaks, everyone listens. But like Kirk, to me, there should be an energy that he just carries. Like when Kirk walks onto the bridge, it carries weight. And I just am not getting that from Paul Wesley. I'm hoping that the Strange New Worlds, you know, folks recognize this to a degree because there was a lot of criticisms and they were also saying things like, um, well, this isn't the real Kirk. This is an alt timeline Kirk. Right. The real Kirk is going to be different. I say that's BS. I think like um, you can say that all you want, but uh, charisma on screen, uh, that should not be like, he didn't have charisma on screen because he was playing an alt timeline Kirk. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's like, no, 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 no. He's a really popular actor at least like he's got a lot of social media followers and um i i guess he was a big deal in the vampire diaries which tells me like he's got to have like i'm just not familiar with paul wesley uh, anything else like i haven't seen him in anything else so maybe it just wasn't the right like episode to introduce him or maybe just i don't know maybe just uh, that said i saw him in the trailer for season two and it's not like he's making me think like oh now he's captured the spirit of James T. Kirk. And maybe their excuse is going to be like, well, this is Lieutenant Kirk. He's not the Captain Kirk that you know in like seven years. I'm just like, oh, God. It just feels that yeah. there's going to be all these qualifiers for maybe why Paul Wesley doesn't capture the spirit that, say, Chris Pine did. This does not strike me as a as a young man who was stealing his father's convertible <laughs> and listening to Sabotage. No. <laughs> um. Look, he does have some of the um, more subtle Shatner in- intonations in his performance. He's not going like over the top Shatner on an SNL skit or anything like that. No. Nope. Um, even just the way that he sat in uh, a chair at one point, it's kind of the, the Shatner sit. And I was like, okay, like he's paying attention to the role and he's not going over the top, which I do appreciate. But I'm just. You can't deny it. Like, Shatner has legit charisma on screen. He is a leading man. And I think what maybe the biggest gulf, though, is when you have um, 
Anson Mount in a scene and Paul Wesley's in that same scene. Yeah. The amount of charisma on one side versus the other is very noticeable. Yeah, well, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, Chris Pine and doing 2009. Regardless of whether he was known at the time or not, he has movie star charisma when he walks on screen. Anson Mount has it too. And Paul Wesley thus far is not showing that. He feels to me kind of like, uh, you know, like a TV actor, like someone who would have been cast, say, on a TNG episode, you know, kind of like a player of the week kind of story. It doesn't feel like this charismatic icon walking onto the show. And I think that is a bit of a problem, especially with a cast as strong as Strange New Worlds. I think if you had more weak links in the cast, you'd say like, ah, you know what? Like, look, uh, you know, maybe Lon isn't working out so well right now. Or, you know, Dr. Mabenga hasn't come into his own yet. But the problem is they all feel so perfected almost out of the gate that it's weird to have to kind of adjust for this new Kirk. It doesn't feel like they're there yet and they're struggling a little bit. Maybe... We're going to sound silly, like, you know, a couple years down the road or maybe after seasons two and three, who knows? We are like, Paul Wesley Kirk took some getting used to, but really, really clicked. It's just that, like, when I think of, like, Star Trek recastings, I really haven't had to spend too much time getting adjusted. I think we've gotten very, very lucky with um, recasting legacy characters. And maybe this just ends up being a a bump in the road. and. We'll just have to live with that. But I wonder, maybe before we dive into the special features on the 4K uh, set, um, why don't we use this as kind of an opportunity to talk about like expectations, hopes for season two. Uh, first expectation or hope is that um, uh, Jim Kirk is way more interesting um, on screen. And um, mm-hmm. he's going to be in at least a couple episodes, season two. Um, I suspect, I don't know, maybe Sam's in trouble and and Jim's the only one who can help or I don't know. Um it appears like he's going back in time to visit a Roots retail outlet based on the season two trailer. <laughs> and hey, Cam, he can't figure out how a revolving door works. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> there seems to be perhaps some sparks with him and Laon. Um, so that could be interesting. Although it is it's because Laon is trying to light a, uh, a lighter. And like those are the literally the only sparks between uh, uh, that, that Paul Wesley can uh, <laughs> help somebody generate. Although it is kind of interesting that like Kirk would potentially have a romantic interest in a uh, descendant of Khan and then meet up with Khan later. And never bother to find out her last name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, apparently like Laon was being ridiculed by children for her connection to Khan. So, I mean, this seems to be pretty uh, out there information, but um, we'll see if that comes to pass. In all fairness, those were, those are Gorn children. Oh, that is yeah, true. Yeah. And Gorn children are the cruelest children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also have Carol Kane joining the show next season. I don't know if she's recurring or if she's in main cast. Maybe that information is already out there. And um, so apologies if I have, uh, if that's gone over my head. I'm curious what Carol Kane is going to bring to the screen as the chief engineer replacing Hammer here. Um, She is a, like... (laughs) She is a performer who has presence. I don't think we're going to be worried about like mm-hmm. whether or not she's bringing like some um, you know, charisma, some gravitas. I don't know if gravitas is the right word, but like she's like, I, I, she's a fun performer, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever energy she's delivering as the chief engineer. I'm also hoping that they figure out a better balance of using her and incorporating her into the cast than they did with Hammer, 
because as you said, like Hammer popped in and out quite a lot, and I hope they find an organic way to make her like feel like part of that crew quickly. Because I don't want to kind of spend a lot of time getting to know this character only for her to be like written out at the end of season two. So according to IMDb, um, Chief Kyle was in more episodes of season one of Strange New Worlds than Hammer. Right. So, um, and Kyle is leaving. Kyle will not be in season two. Oh, really? Uh, what's the backstory? Do you know? Just got another job, according to the commentary. Okay. Well, good for yeah. her. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, season two, like, uh, okay, obviously we're going to kick things off, trying to resolve, like, Una's arrest. Um, my suspicion is that, I don't know, Pike will give a speech and she'll be allowed to continue serving as first officer aboard the Enterprise by the end of the premiere? Is that a fair enough guess? I think so. I mean, there's the whole bit in Ghosts of Illyria where they're talking about how there was a certain sect of Illyrians that were trying to, like, leave their genetic, you know, tampering behind so they could, like, join Starfleet and what have you. I just think, like, they're good. the fact they introduced that nugget of information is probably telltale for where they're going to go. And I think this is going to be... Uh, somewhat written out or at least hand waved away within the first episode you're not going to spend like three episodes of pike having to fight to get uh number one back on the ship so it's interesting like every you know year before or every time a uh, season of discovery or picard is about to launch you and i are like oh i wonder what the mystery of the season is going to be we don't really have to have that discussion here there, there was no serialized mystery going on in season one of strange new worlds i would be mortified if that turns out to be the case in season two yeah um i'm just looking forward to them exploring more of the star trek universe having fun within the star trek universe it feels like it's been a long time uh in live action at least that they've had fun in the star trek universe and you know i i just point to stuff like spock amok or look even like the trailer revealed um you know, Spock drinking blood wine with Klingons that look like yeah. TNG Eric Klingons. I, I think that's the signal that we'll be having fun as well. So far, the show is doing like a masterful job of incorporating original series elements without feeling just kind of like falling back on the lazy fan service. So like I'm hoping to see them incorporate more aspects of that universe from the original series that could use some fleshing out. I don't think you need to like go back and have Baylock show up or something like that, but you know, take <laughs> just various alien species that in those days you weren't going to have serialized storytelling, but like to work them back in. I would also just be interested in seeing if they can bring back some of the timeline appropriate stuff from discovery. Like, I think it would be fun to have rain Wilson back as Harry mud. Yep. Um, there are things they set up. I not too interested in like section 31, but I would love to see Laurel, uh, at least mentioned in some way, um, just to know where that character's at. But I look forward to seeing them, you know, perhaps do some of these, especially Laurel, like do that character justice, because I think this show would care about writing a legit, interesting Laurel Klingon focused episode versus like, yeah, we're just gonna have some weird things happen, and we'll check in with that character later. Is there anyone? from the discovery seasons one and two left behind in this era um other than ash tyler and laurel that would be interesting to revisit like i don't think like well i don't know if, i don't care about ash tyler um saru's sister i sarana i didn't yeah. find all that gripping 
Yeah. Um, is there anybody that we really want to go back to? Like, I, uh, Harry Mudd for me, yeah. Laurel for me, yeah. Or Prime Lorca, perhaps? Prime Lorca, to me, seems like one that... I, I, I will, I'll be curious how much they want to incorporate discovery mythology versus just like kind of like bringing back stuff that's easy to bring back. Like, say you did an episode with Kelpians. You don't need to necessarily be giving people a primer too much about that. I wonder if like at this point, like Prime Lorca would be confusing for this audience. You know, as you said, like this show has really hit more mainstream attention than what say Discovery was doing. Does Prime Lorca get confusing? If they can do it in a like very clever, easy to get across way, I would love to see it for sure. Yeah. Um, Cam, these special features. Um, I'll ask you uh, some questions about the commentary in just a moment, but um, yeah. Uh, these special features feel pretty bush league to me. Um, uh huh. The, the the fact is they can't even get quotation marks right in the episodes. Did you notice the quotation marks? Um, you know how you're always supposed to have like two quotation marks and then they kind of um kind of curve into each other, like uh, point towards each other. But um, the first quotation mark always pointed in the right or in the wrong direction. And I was like, how Bush League is this here? But I mean, you, you've got stuff called like Pike's Peak and it's just, it's Anson Mount. He's just taping stuff on his phone <laughs> and he hands it over to an editor and they cobble together, I don't know, some Something. What, seven, 17 minutes of him just being on set. And and also the other thing that's kind of depressing about these um special features is this is at like the height of the pandemic and it was kind of a, a reminder about how like we weren't vaccinated yet and everybody's wearing masks and then some people are wearing masks just underneath their nose and I was just like oh this is kind of a bummer like mm -hmm. I, I I don't know if the future of cinema is going to address the pandemic that if there's a real clever say heist movie that could center around the pandemic sure yeah. But this is just kind of such a depressing era. I don't know if like we really want to be reminded of um those two years between um you know 2020 and 2022. Yeah, and I mean judging from on the commentary they talk about the the logistics of shooting the season. I don't think they want to remember it that much either. <laughs> it sounds like it was just a a headache. It just seems brutal. And apparently like the the first episode um the stuff on the ship versus them down on that alien planet was shot like a year apart. I can believe, or a year apart. Yeah, okay. because everything where they had crowds, they had to do like a year later when restrictions had dropped. So that's the thing that I was wondering about, because uh, in the special features, you find out that the first shot of the entire show is, is Pike on the horse mm -hmm. and that snow. But then that's also the episode in which um, it's bright and sunny on the alien planet. Yeah. And I was like, uh, Ontario's weather um, doesn't change <laughs> quite like that. You know, yes. um, okay, so that makes sense then. Um, I guess, like, I'm trying to think, like, everything else just seemed to be, like, very surface level. Like, this is the character, Laon. Oh. She is a descendant of one Khan Nudian Singh. And I was just like, okay. Like, I just didn't really get much out of, um, you know, kind of, I, I guess, the hour-long um, special feature there. No, I couldn't stand that documentary, actually. I thought it was completely worthless. And it was formatted the exact same as the ones on the Discovery Season 1 and 2 Blu-ray. Like, the way they're... They were broken up in that case by episode. Here it was by character. But it's the same thing where what they're doing is telling you what you watched. Yes. <laughs> so, a lot of, like... You know, I'm playing a character named Lon, who... Lon has a lot of struggles, and she's going to have to battle to overcome them by the end of the season. It's like, yep, I, I 
saw that happen. Yes, thank you very much. And it just has absolutely no insight into um, into anything that you saw on the show. They're just telling you what you saw, which is either bad questions on the part of the interviewer, or they were talking to those actors before they had any perspective whatsoever on what they like achieved in the season. I think it's just a bad documentary. And it's, uh, I go back and I think to what, um, you know, back in the, the height of buying DVDs, owning that physical media and having just bundles of special features on there, um, Lost and The Shield, it was amazing. They would always do like these one hour documentaries that would focus on one single episode and they would follow from the writer's room, breaking the storyline, writing the script, um, filming or doing the pre-production, filming that episode going into post-production and just all the steps along the way to capture just one story and it, it it didn't have to be this broad expansive view of like this is what the lost season four means to me you know it, and just by kind of going narrow it was so much more gripping than whatever this this just seemed cheap yeah like it, it seemed as if they paid like minimal money for the crew that put this together um the one thing I did, look, the gay reel was all right. Um, I, I mean, I didn't like crack up at anything, but it was nice, like, to see them like laugh at things occasionally. Over, they seem to have fun. Yeah, <laughs> it was. What, I think like less than three minutes long, though. So maybe they're just yeah. a very professional group of folks, or maybe there's like cursing that happened, and I, I, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> just wall to wall profanity. <laughs> <laughs> um, the AR video. Uh, it was uh documentary it was 11 minutes again it kind of cheaply made um but it's still interesting just seeing how they've applied kind of the uh the so-called volume technology on two strange new worlds i think in a much more effective way than they did on star trek discovery hmm. but um seeing everything from main engineering to the cargo bay to vulcan to alien planets it's quite breathtaking like this technology that they're using here yeah this is the type of documentary that i think works for for like a DVD season or a 4K season in this case, um, where it was like showing up like a element of the production and how they did it. I remember being really frustrated with a lot of the Star Trek Into Darkness special features, but I remember there was like at least one where they're talking about building the opening, you know, the kind of the red planet where um, Kirk is like running away with the map basically from the uh, aliens on the planet. Yeah. And like that was showing you how they made that like, how they achieved that for the big screen. And here, a big part of this show has been the use of the virtual environment and the way that they showed how they were hiding it. They showed you different environments from the season. It's a fairly short, like, I don't know, 15-minute documentary, but it was pretty, I think, helpful in giving you some insight into the production, which is not something you get any of in that hour-long documentary. Cam, I think I delivered more for the Star Trek Strange New Worlds uh, crew with my news story about the uh, the AR video wall uh, when I got to go visit um, it, it uh, here in Vancouver in which they were kind of projecting the main engineering of uh, Strange New Worlds. Uh, just using, It's pretty much just like download from like the model that they have in Toronto and then put it here in Vancouver. So that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, it, the commentary sounds like they actually had some pretty good tidbits in there. Who Who is doing the commentary? I'll, I'll, I'll give it a watch, but um, you tell me. Yeah, the commentary is Akiva Goldsman and Anson Mount. And honestly, the majority of what I learned about this season came from that commentary. Okay. Yeah. Where Akiva Goldsman, uh, 
probably a bit of an old hand at doing commentaries, I would think. I'm sure he's done a number for all the films he's worked on, but like definitely showed up with like details and information he wanted to impart. And Anson Mount um, does get a lot of the kind of like, oh, this cast member was so much fun to work with. What a wonderful person and a great friend. Right. But um, there was enough details in there where I was like, I didn't know that. I didn't know Ortega's was based on a uh, character that Gene Runberry put in a early script treatment for the cage and then was dropped. Like, who knew? And like, there's elements like that working throughout the entire commentary. And honestly, when it was over, I was like, I really wish they had done more episode commentaries and spare me mm. these very superficial documentaries. Okay. So I will give that a listen. Um, curious about that. Overall, um, season one, Strange New Worlds. I, I don't think I overhyped it in my head uh, last year. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's the strongest live action season of Star Trek um, since uh, the Kurtzman universe uh, took over. You know, I'm happy to say I think it's the strongest season of Star Trek of this Kurtzman era period. I would definitely say the same thing. I think uh, this is a season like when I did the rewatch, I just fell in love with the energy of this show all over again. And it was just like, it gave me what I want from a Star Trek show, which is something I get from, you know, TOS or TNG, DS9, which is that it makes me want to revisit it. And I know that I'm going to rewatch season one of uh, Strange New Worlds, like, many more times, I'm sure, over the course of my life. Yeah. Whereas, like, when I have, like, Picard season one sitting on my Blu-ray shelf, it's like, yeah. uh, uh, maybe I'll watch Nepenthe at some point. <laughs> I Okay, so I stopped at Discovery season two. That was the last uh, physical media I got of that show. I never got Picard seasons one or two. I will get season three on 4K or Blu-ray, whatever they deliver. Yeah. And then I have the first two seasons of Lower Decks. I still need to get the third season, which has been out for a little bit. I feel like they put that one out rather quietly in comparison to some of the others. Yes, they did. Because uh, I was surprised to see that as already out. Yeah, like I was looking it up actually just on Amazon or whatever, and it's like kind of pricey. I'm wondering if they put it out in smaller quantities than the previous two seasons. Um, I don't know. It just seemed very quiet in comparison to the previous two to me. Quiet, just like you have to be if there's a Gorn attack. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Right. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod and let us know your thoughts of Strange New Worlds Season 1 now that you've had a bit of distance from it. And also let us know what you think of the uh, various special features on the disc. And of course, you can also leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. They are much appreciated for rankings and what have you on various platforms. Now, Tyler, what are we doing next week? So we have Strange New Worlds in two weeks. And then I think it's us doing like, I don't know, weekly reviews of Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks for like the next six months. So we're going to squeeze in one last quintessential sort of subspace episodes in which we will be exploring kind of those secret sequels or side quills that you often see on Star Trek. Um, we're kind of inspired by Quality of Mercy, which was uh, very much a nod to Balance of Terror. But I think maybe the quintessential side quill, as you might want to call it in all of Star Trek, would be Trials and Tribulations. But here we're going to explore episodes that uh, might be ripe for the picking when it comes to uh, some crews dropping in on other crews for an iconic adventure. 
I can't help but notice you didn't mention flashback. There's a reason why. <laughs> or these are the voyages. <laughs> okay, you can, of course, also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Vent the Hold is something I wrote in my notes and underlined, so I assume it means something. Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P is in Pike's Hair. O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. It tickles, Daddy. 